And that was the kind of feeling you had when you played at Carolina. It was the kind of feeling you had when you played on the national team. You know, we were playing for each other. We were trying to succeed so everyone can have that opportunity to play. This is For the Love of the Game, hosted by old school college soccer coaches Ralph Perez and Ray Reed. Between these two, you're listening to 81 years of coaching college athletes, nearly 900 career wins, five national championships, and approximately 17,546 names in their contact lists. On this podcast, they grab some of those names and talk about what's going on in the soccer world today. In this episode, Ralph and Ray are talking with one of the most accomplished athletes in the world of soccer, Christine Lilly. Christine's decades-long career began at the University of North Carolina, where she helped lead the team to four straight national championships. Christine also took on a leadership role with the U.S. Women's National Team. And with 354 caps, she's the most capped player in team history. She's also the best-selling author of Powerhouse, 13 teamwork tactics that build excellence and unrivaled success. And she'll be sharing some of those tactics today. Here they are, Ralph, Ray, and Christine. So you were raised in Wilton, Connecticut. You know, I saw you play as a young camper. If you want to tell our listeners how you developed as a player when soccer wasn't as big as, as it is now. Yeah, I mean, shoot, the, the layout of the soccer world was so different back then. I was born in 71, year before uh, Title IX passed. Um, so I grew up in a small town in Wilton, Connecticut. And um, I have an older brother. So whatever my older brother did, Scott, I wanted to do. Uh, soccer was one of the sports that he did. So I just started tagging along and just started playing soccer and baseball, football in the yard, everything you could think of. But then I started to get a little bit decent at the game. And um, since it wasn't, it was back then in the 70s, there wasn't a lot of girls playing. So I was playing with the boys. So from second grade to eighth grade, I played with the boys in soccer and had a, we had played on a travel team. There was no club system yet um, in place. So it was just the, our local town travel team and loved it. And it th- I didn't think anything of it, that there was no girls around me. I was just playing the game of soccer that I loved and competing and trying to win and doing all those great things. Um, then I got to high school and then I joined the uh, Wilton varsity soccer team my freshman year. I played four years varsity. We won three state titles there in Wilton. And when I was a junior in high school is when I made the national team. And, and I think for me, it, it's what changed my life. And I think for different reasons that people may think. So my whole life growing up, I was playing with boys until high school. And then I make my high school team. And then I make the national team where all it's all women. And all these women that are strong, they're talented, they're competitive. They want to fight. They want to just get, you know, going hard. And I was like, oh, my gosh, where have all these women been <laughs> my whole life? Uh, so when I made the national team, I was surrounded by the people that looked like me and wanted the same things. And so it was such a eye opener and it's such uh, and humbling at the same time because these players were so good. My life just changed. And from there, you know, obviously I had a wonderful 23 year career on the national team, went to North Carolina for four years, uh, won titles there and just really got to travel the world and play this great game of soccer. Thank you. Go ahead, Ralph. First of all, it's a pleasure to to talk to you one-on-one. I've followed your career. I'm a big fan of the women's team. Good friend of mine really got me involved in uh, 87, the sports festival in uh, yeah. Raleigh, Durham, Brahani, under Brahani. He had yeah. the West region and was a coach at Stanford. So uh, I got to see these girls play up close and personal. I guess my question is, 
looking at the longevity of this career of yours, first of all, I, I, unbelievable the amount of caps. I mean, I was talking to my good friend today about a 354. That's phenomenal. I don't know if anybody's ever going to catch that one. That's a record that I think will stand for the, the test of time. But the question I have is, as you're just mentioning about, you know, the start of it back. But if you can just talk, because I followed that World Cup, the first one in 91 yeah. in China, and how that was and how did that really work out for you girls as you were going over there to China? Yeah, so ni- it's hard to believe 91 was the first World Cup for women. And I think for, I made the U.S. national team in, in 87, and I think 85 was the first year they had a women's team. And Michelle Akers was a, on the 85 team. When I made 87, still, I didn't know anything about the national team. I didn't know it existed. There was nothing on TV. Let, there wasn't women's soccer, let alone much men's soccer on TV back then. So when I made the team, I was like, sweet. And then we were just playing. We didn't know. We didn't have a World Cup. We didn't have an Olympics yet. So we were just competing. Uh, I think our first couple of trips were to Italy. And then FIFA decided to, you know, give it a try for the women. So they, did, they didn't even want to call it a World Cup. They called it the M&M M&M Cup or something like that because they didn't know how it was going to go. Um, and I think we played 40-minute halves because uh, we couldn't play 45 because we were girls, I guess. So all these elements were so different. But it was for us as players, we were so excited. You know, we were like, okay, we get to play, you know, in a World Cup, try to be the best in the world. And it was in China. So we, that, before that World Cup in 91, I think we probably went to China four times before the World Cup just to get acclimated and over there. So, and it was a different world in 87 in China um, than it is now. When we finally went over for the World Cup, I think we had about 100 fans of our family and friends that came. And uh, the final game, you know, we had 64,000 people there, but there was like 100 Americans. You could see them in one spot, you know, sitting there. But it was exciting for us. It was, it was, um, it was a first for all of us. So we were just kind of taking it in. Anson Dorrance was our coach. So, uh, you know, he, he brought us there and was like, ladies, this is ours to take. And, uh, you know, he believed in us. We believed in our team. And we end up, you know, winning it. I mean, I don't think we were supposed to win it because the American football wasn't, you know, supposed to be World Cup champions. But we did. And when we won, we as players, we were like, oh, my God, this is so great. I, I hope everybody, you know, was watching. I don't, I don't think they covered it on TV. I don't even know. But when we got back to the States afterwards, there was like three people there. I think uh, uh, Bora, the men's coach, was there and a couple of reporters in New York when they met us. We're like, oh, my gosh, no one no one's here. We just won. But for us, we still, you know, we we're still the best in the world. And it was one of the greatest, you know, feelings that I'm a young kid. I was 20 in that world cup. So I was just trying not to mess up to be honest with you. You know, I was just trying to help my team and um, not mess anything up. And it was, it was super exciting uh, for all of us. Well, I know that we had April on a couple of weeks ago and obviously for her and, and Michelle Akers and Karen Jennings, you know, the triple edged yeah. sword there yeah. uh, was a phenomenal trio to have up top. But I think, you know, it's interesting because I was Bora's assistant and I was in L.A. And he said to me, I'm going to go to the airport. I said, where are you going to the airport for? He goes, I-, I think I should go meet the world champions. And I said, well, Bora, I think you might be the only guy there. So I hope not. But and then when he called me afterwards and told me that, you know, it's just him and two, maybe one or two reporters that were yeah. there. It's a shame. I, I get what you're saying, because when we went in 90, it was the same with us. Uh, just yeah. 200 family, fam- uh, family and friends that went and but I, I just want to say though that 
I was trying to do the math this morning, but I figured why not just ask Christy? How many World Cups did you play in? I played in five. Uh, five 2007 wow. was my last one. I almost made it to 2011, but I had was pregnant with my second child, and I thought it was time to <laughs> call it quits. Congratulations. Five World Cups is a, a feat that is phenomenal, and I watched every one of them except it the first cool one. It was cool because, you know, when we when we first had the first one, we didn't know there was gonna if there was gonna be a second one, you know. So I was a junior in college when that happened, and we, we I went back to college, took my, you know, final exams after the, after that because it was in November, and then we all as players were like, oh my gosh, are we gonna see each other again? Are we gonna have a team? And so we were kind of on just hold for a little bit, um, and I think I went over to Sweden to play in '93 after I graduated because we didn't still know what was going on, and then finally. We found out there would be another World Cup in 95, and then obviously the Olympics came in 96. So it was kind of like a interesting time. We just won this great thing, and then we didn't know if we were going to play again. Yeah, so weird. That's crazy. How many Olympics were you in, Chris? I was in three. Three. So can you tell our listeners, talk about the three most influential people in your playing career? Oh, all right. My first is my brother. He tends to think he taught me everything, but I'll give him about <laughs> I'll give him about eighty percent because the greatest thing he he did for me he was let me play, and I, I I share the story a lot because you know anyone that's a younger sibling you know you always want to be around your older sibling, and I I imagine any every older sibling doesn't want their young, younger sibling around, but he he let me and you know if his his buddies were going out and playing football in the yard I'd always want to tag along. Uh, and he always had one rule. He said, no crying. You know, and I was like, okay, no crying. So he was the first one that, you know, opened the door for me and, and never said no. And, you know, growing up a time where girls weren't playing, a lot of girls weren't playing sports. I didn't get no a lot. And uh, that was a huge part of my development because I never felt like I couldn't do something. So him and my family and my parents' support was incredible. I'd have to say Anson was probably the next most uh, influential because he he changed my life by giving me a chance when I was 16 years old on the national team. He brought uh, myself, Mia Hamm, and Julie Foudy, three young kids to join the full team and cut a bunch of old uh, older players. When I mean older players, they're probably mid to early 20s and wasn't very popular for the team, but he took a risk on us and I, I think he's happy he did. Um, and I'm grateful that he did. Uh, and then obviously the opportunity I had to play with the pay, play for him as well at North Carolina was incredible. So a lot of things he, he did for me to give me a chance and I, uh, I took it and I ran with it. So I'm so grateful for him for that. And I think the last one, one, or I would say many that I bring up would be my teammates. So, you know, being a female athlete back in the seventies and early eighties, there wasn't much, you know, to see other females. So when I joined that national team and I met those players, my world changed and I was inspired by these women. You know, like I said earlier, you know, they were strong, they were competitive, they were sweating, they wanted to win. They had fun. They were very, very good. And so I was forever like, holy cow, how do I remain on this team forever so I can play with these players? Um, and every day at practice, they'd inspire me. Hopefully in return, I inspired them. So that I think my team was really influential in my, my development as a player, but also my de development as just a human being. Whether it was professional, Carolina, or national team, who was your most, not with you in general, most competitive teammate, highest engine to compete besides yourself? Yeah, you know, I mean, the national team was. I mean, like, 
when I, even Carolina, uh, I mean, the atmosphere that Anson had at Carolina and the national team was very similar because he was coaching both at the time, probably not very fond by other college coaches at the time <laughs> that he was doing that, but <laughs> he had the opportunity. So it was a very similar environment. It was a very competitive atmosphere. So every time you stepped on the field, you were competing. So my teammates at Carolina, I would say, you know, April Heinrichs is probably one of the most competitive people on the national team when I was younger, I remember. And if you weren't on April's team, you wanted to kill, you wanted to beat her so badly. Um, that's how competitive she was. So the environment was just a, a great place to try to be the best that you can be. And if you didn't, if you didn't step up and, and compete, you were going to get destroyed. So it made you have to raise, you know, be ready every time you stepped on that field. And I think, and I think that's something that a lot of young players now don't realize that you got to step, you got to compete. You can't, you can't save it for a game. You can't save it for when I was watching. You got to, every time you step out there, you got to compete to try to be better and help your team win. Well, listening to your, your career and seeing that you said you've been state titles at high school, you won national titles, NC2A at UNC, and then obviously World Cup and Olympic gold. You've come out and, uh, and, and wrote something about, you know, the 13 teamwork tactics that build excellence and unrevealed success. And, and we had April on, and we also had Carly Lloyd on. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something special about all you, you people, as you just mentioned, the magic words, the competitiveness. So I guess my question to you is, that's the million dollar question I'm asked all the time and I don't have the answer. So I'm going to ask you, how do you instill that into young players that you see that have talent, but just lack that little psychological makeup? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I think that's one question I think a lot of coaches <laughs> struggle with um, because you see a lot of the kids with the talent, but they're just missing or not. They're not completely there. And I think that really is what separates the great from the good. You know, I think the great players, and I think there it's a it's a small number that reach the top because they have to have the whole package. And what I mean by the whole package, it's not necessarily the whole talent. It's the it's the mentality. It's the commitment. It's knowing your strength and taking that strength to another level. And it's stepping on the field and competing every day. And one of the things I'm watching my daughter play and she's got a lot of the, the skills and stuff, but sometimes when she steps on the field, I'm like, Oh my gosh, where are you? <laughs> you know? And, and I think it's just, I hopefully it will click for her. I mean, I don't know how much more I could say is that, Hey, you gotta, you gotta compete. You gotta step out there and want to win. Cause I don't think you can push in there the want to win. I think that's gotta be there. And I, that was in my family forever. I mean, we we're a competitive family. We're very sports oriented. And maybe it's maybe it was my older brother, to be honest with you. He, he wanted to he literally kick my butt every day. And I always was just trying to, you know, to compete and, and be able to um, try to beat him. And if you look at the full the national team, the 99 team, I would say 80 percent of that team had older brothers. And I really think there there is something to that, uh, not do all to end all. But I really think that influence is something that's. Uh, different um, than the the um, framework of sports now for girls. You know, they have, we have all these girls playing club soccer with girls, which is great. But the element for me playing with boys, I always had to try to prove myself every time I stepped on the field because I was a girl plus in my skill wise. So I think there's a lot of elements, but I think it really separates the great from the good. And I think um, there may be some players that are on tinkering on that 
line and then maybe they, you know, get a message from a coach and say, Hey, if you want to make this, you got to compete. And they're like, Oh shoot, I got to do this. You know? So I think there's that, that element. Um, but it, that's a, that's, that's a tough one. Sure. That's a tough well, thank one. you for sharing. Yeah. But I just got to ask this last question that goes with hand in hand with that. Never won a high school title, never won a college title. Obviously. Yeah. I, I coached to, to win an MLS cup, but I think, my question to you is, when you think about that, I, I mean, it's amazing that everything you competed, you won. Have you ever thought that through now that you've had some time and you're not you know, training and playing anymore? I do. But you know what? One thing I did, I never won a professional title. I never won with the Boston Breakers. I was so mad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the one you didn't get is still bothering I know. But I still can't get over it. I do look at it and I do, I think it makes me proud to be part of it. And I feel like, you know, I was a big part of it to be on the field constantly for my team to help uh, win. And, and the thing about it, like people are always like, well, what do you, what else do you want to do? I'm like, well, I love winning and I hate losing more. So if I'm going to compete, I'd rather have a feeling of that winning feeling and trying that over and over again, than having just going out there and, you know, all right. And then losing. Cause that feeling to lose stinks. Nobody likes it. My 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 daughter's U twelve team tied, and we were up one nothing. I felt like, oh my god, we just lost that game. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I felt it. I said it to them. I was like, girls, does this feel like a loss? And I think they looked at me like I was like, what? No, we tied. <laughs> but as a coach, I still have that competitiveness, you know, and I can't do anything but make the decisions. And you know, and who knows that one decision I make might cost us the game. But anyway, that's another whole topic for coaching. But yeah, it's 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 wonderful to be on the teams I was I was a part of, and and I think all the three championships I won at um, my high school. Uh, yes, I probably was the dominant player, but we had so many great players on that team. You know, good players. Everyone just doing their job, knowing their role, and doing it. And I, if I look at all the teams from my high school to college to the national team, that was the common denominator. You had you know. That your talent, but then you had everyone knowing what their role was and just doing their job, and that helped us be successful by putting it all together. But share for the listeners, I graduated Southern 1982, Southern Connecticut. I decided to become an assistant coach, work for Bob the Cranian. So the way to make money was to work at his Camp Victory Soccer School up in Canterbury Prep School, 83. I worked about 15 years, but somewhere in that time span, 83, 82, 84, Seven fields, all grass, 300 kids, co-ed, more boys than girls, but co-ed, and, all, and one little field. You know, it, was a, <laughs> it was a smaller field. And this one, at that point, little girl would carve up these boys every night. And it got to be egotistical coaches would be in the room. I want Lily's team. I want Lily's team. She, when she was young, she and we had guys at the camp, John Garvey, Lyle Yorks, Cardinalfo, God rest his soul, Johnny DeBrito, good players. I mean, these aren't stiffs. And she was carving up a little, if I remember correctly, little left-footed on the dribble. Oh, man, great player, great player. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm not kidding you. Whenever we talk about you, like with Tom Meredith, well, when you were playing and watching you play, I would tell people, I saw she was like 10 years old, and she was carving up these 12-year-old boys like they were nothing. I mean, nothing. And uh, obviously, that was the start of a great career. So you've had an unbelievable career. I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. What's your most memorable moment as a player? Mm. Well, if I go, if I go to my youth first, oranges at halftime, 
I know that, uh, that's, but I really think that that got me to the game of soccer. I love the oranges. I, I mean, I see, see how many I could eat. So when I was young, I mean, obviously I loved playing running around, but that was like the highlight of my younger years. And then I think, you know, I think my longevity is something I'm really proud of, but I think the moments that stand out for me was my very first game with the national team. It was 87 and we went to China. And like I said earlier that myself, Julie Fowdy and Mia Ham got asked to join the team. And the first half of the game we were playing against China, we were sitting on the bench watching. And I remember sitting there and, and I'm thinking in my mind, like, what am I doing here? Like I was watching, you know, April Heinrichs, Karen Jennings, Michelle Akers, Lori Henry. Uh, I mean, these players, Shannon Higgins, I think, were out there as well. And I was like, they were so good. And they were just they were college kids. So I was like, oh, my God, they're so old. They're so strong and big. And then the second half, we Anson put the three young kids in. And I was like, okay, just survive, just, you know, just survive. But I remember there was a ball served in. I can, I remember this ball served in up to Karen Jennings and she kind of trapped it and, and left it up for a bouncing ball. And I ran onto it and like kind of half volleyed it and went in. And I was like, I jumped up and I remember Karen just put me like in her arms. And I just thought for a second, like, I was like, okay, I can do this. And it wasn't, and, and the point of it, it wasn't that I scored, but, it was just something that I did that contributed that I felt like, Oh, okay, maybe I do belong here. And then just the feeling of, you know, the, the, the support I got immediately from these older players, I was like, okay, let's see if I can handle this. And uh, so it kind of just gave me that lift that I needed to know that, you know what, Anson thinks I belong here. And now I feel like I belong here. So that was kind of a big moment for, for me to set my longevity of my career. And you said 87, right? In China. Yeah. You were, you were obviously still a teenager. I mean, junior, yeah, 16. People should realize you weren't a junior in college. You were a teenager in high school. Yeah, point. junior in high school. And in China. So that's In the, China. I was homesick so bad. <laughs> now, I don't imagine, right, the national team did not travel then like it travels today, right? <laughs> I think we're all middle seats. I think we're, you know what? I think we're the last row before smoking section, to be honest with you. <laughs> right. These lot of people smoke on the plane flights. Yes. Hey, you touched on this a little bit, but again, Ralph and I know him. Obviously, you know him, but mm -hmm. a lot of the young people may not know him. Carolina national team, either or both. What was it like playing for Anson Dorrance? Yeah. You know, it was one of those um, things. He was an incredible motivator. So when you stepped out on the field, uh, he instilled in us that we were the best. So... And it wasn't in a cocky way. It was in a way like if you guys do everything you're you're bound to do on the field and if you play for each other, like his big thing was play for each other, then you, you guys are going to be the best. You're going to win. He always set a standard. And like I said, everything was competitive. You know, we would do 1v1s at practice on the national team and at Carolina. And, you know, we played three different 1v1 games and then we'd have to come in and he'd like, okay, tell me your your score, whether it was two and one or zero, three or three, and zero, And that was kind of an experience where if you were zero and three, you didn't want to say that very loud because you just knew that you're, you're all your teammates going to hear that you didn't, you didn't win that day. So it was really one of those things that you had accountability early on and uh, you worked to make sure that you're, you're being the best you could be out there, but his, his ability to motivate us and his ability to get the best out of us was something that I was very, I was amazed by.
it was almost to an extent where we were playing a game with the national team and uh, it was halftime. I think we were up maybe two nothing and Anson goes to the starters and he used to do starters reserves. So he'd call the starters and then the reserves. And to be honest with you, I was fortunate enough to be in the starting side. I don't know what it felt like to be known as the reserves, you know, and I don't know if this day and age that would work with the mentality of these, the kids these days, but it was something that you inspired. You wanted to get on that starting team, you know, and I wanted to stay on that team. I didn't want to be on the, the reserve team. I wanted to be on the starting team. So we were up to nothing at half and he, he brings the starters and he goes, girls, you got 15 minutes and I'm giving you 15 minutes to score two goals because I want you to get the reserves in. And what is down to me, what, what amazed me by that comment wasn't necessarily his comment, but what the team did. Everyone's like, okay, guys, we got to score two goals. We got to get these players in. So immediately we were thinking of the other players playing. So we wanted to do what we could to get them on the field. And that was the kind of feeling you had when you played at Carolina. It was the kind of feeling you had when you played on the national team. You know, we were playing for each other. We were trying to succeed so everyone could have that opportunity to play. And it was just, it was just a battle. It was so great just to put yourself out there and try to try to be better and help your team be better. So with the pro teams right now, right? Obviously, leagues are popping up more opportunities, yeah, especially for female players. Not that you came short in your career, but do you miss do you miss that now there's so many opportunities to play professionally in this country where when you were playing, you had the national team, you had to go to Europe a little bit. I know you played for the Bolts, but obviously there's more more opportunities at the American professional level now than there was when you guys were at your heyday. Yeah, I think it's great. I think, you know, I, I played over in Sweden for like a month or two in 93 and then went back in 95. I played professionally with the indoor uh, CISL league with the boys um, for a month just to get training because I had no place to play. So if I did have those opportunities, it would just be it would just be a whole different world. I'm kind of a homebody, so I'm trying to figure out if I would survive overseas playing professionally. Um, but I think it would be so great to have that opportunity. And now to see some of the players, you know, playing in England, they're playing in um, France and, you know, Sweden. Um, Sweden had a league for a long time. And, and now to see these other countries just finally supporting them, it's been great. But it would be so fun. And I think in the end, trying to start our league that we did in the U.S. and be part of those first two leagues, I loved it. I loved being a professional athlete. It was It was wonderful. And so... Now that we have our league that's lasting a bit longer and we're in eighth or ninth season now, it, it's great. And it just gives more girls an opportunity to compete at a higher level and also through that pro league to be able to make a chance to maybe make the national team through that way as well. It's incredible. I, I guess the question I have for you is an, an interesting one for me. You've played in the Olympics and you've played in World Cups. And obviously in our country, Olympics is a massive event, well covered, every sport. And obviously, I guess your first Olympics was in, when it was here in America, right? 1996 yeah. in Atlanta. Great crowds, just like uh, you had in 99 World Cup. But tell me, you know, maybe out of your Olympic experiences, which one really has some great memories? And then, yeah, obviously, you got so many World Cups to choose from. I don't want to put you on the spot of the pick. <laughs> one, but maybe maybe well, the, the favorite venue. Yeah, well, you know what? The Olympics... The host in 96, I mean, it stands out to me right away because, you know, to be in Olympics that your country hosts is not like no other. Um, you got the home, home feel behind you and it was incredible. And to have that be my first Olympics, 
was unbelievable. And I, what was interesting for us is, well, soccer is never really in, you know, the city that the host, you know, the host the Olympics. So Atlanta was the host, but we played our first, I think, couple games in Florida. And I even think our, our final was in um, outside of Atlanta. So um, in Athens, Georgia. So, you know, we never were in the village. So we, I remember when Tony, Tony was our coach now for this. So Tony took over in 94 and coached us through the 2000 World Cup. And I remember we we're talking about going to the opening ceremonies or not. And Tony and we were, I think we were either playing the next day or the day after. It was really kind of close. But we all were like, Tony, listen, we will sit down the whole time. You know, we'll hydrate. We'll do this. But it was all our first Olympic. We wanted the experience. So he he caved in and uh, we went to the opening ceremonies. And it's one of my favorite moments of the open, the opening ceremonies because what what was incredible about it we were the last country to come in because we were hosting and we were in the the i don't know the track was where the opening ceremonies were and they were in the baseball field waiting and we were just sitting there and you just wait and you're watching it on tv and it was our chance our chance to finally come down and all the u.s athletes so we came down this ramp and we got into the stadium and the place just erupts and i'm thinking i'm like we haven't even done anything yet you know and the support you felt and the pride you felt for your country was just by far one of the most amazing feelings I had. Um, so walking around, you know, the stadium and just, you know, we had little flags and just hearing the support was unbelievable. So that that moment was really incredible. And then um, I'll just end it with the 2004 Olympics when we beat Brazil in the final. I think standing on that field for me was a special because that was last time Mia Julie and Joy and I would all play together. So I didn't want to leave the field for long. And after winning and everyone thought we were going to lose, we were like, I just wanted to stay on that field forever. But it, that it just it's just a, a a wonderful feeling to feel the support from your country and the fans and everything. And it goes into the World Cup as well. 99 World Cup has to be the highlight because not only because we won, but we changed people's views on the world of soccer for women and Companies started to invest in the women's game and the sponsors and all that. So it's so much change after we won that. And the same feeling of the home feel. We were like rock stars all summer, you know, walking through the airport. People are clapping, high-fiving us, want to take pictures. So it was just something that um, felt so good. And we just, we enjoyed it. We took it, we took it in and we enjoyed it and made sure we just put a good product out on the field. Chris, do you, uh, you coaching? Yes, I'm coaching now. Kids. Your, it's hard. Your, your daughters? <laughs> Good for you. Good. Yeah. <laughs> it's different, right? It's a little it different. It is different. I, I mean, I enjoy the kids. It's just hard. You can't, like, I love playing so much more. <laughs> you can't. There's just so much you can say, you know, <laughs> and you want to get out there. I'm like, how, how can you not realize where to stand? How do you, how do you uh, pass look, to a person? You there's know, there's a reason. There's a reason. You know, Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, were not great coaches, and you're in that, and you're right in that and category. I'm not sure if I'm a great coach or not. That's the problem. Know, that doesn't matter. But my point is, it didn't come easy for you, but the game was everything for you, and you probably to a certain degree have expectations of players, and that's hard. You know, it's hard because yeah. you know. If you look at look at Magic, right? He was with the Lakers for what about three months, and he quit as the coach. And Jordan never coached. Yeah, I could see you. You know, but your daughters play, right? They both do both they, of them. Play? 
they both have a 14 year old and 11 year old. My, my 14 year old just moved on to a, a bigger club with more competitiveness. And Good. I'm still coaching my 11 year old. Good for you. Good and for I love, and it's fine. I mean, I'm at the games and the, my theory was I'm like, I'm either sitting on the sideline with the parents getting mad that this decisions being made or go on the coach and make the decisions and let parents get mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> you had a long career. What do you miss playing? I do. I do. I do because I, of all the elements, I miss the teammates and I miss that competitiveness. But in the other sense, I don't miss playing because I can't do what I used to do. And that's something like I would frustrate me if I was to play right now. Yeah. Well, you're on that subject of teammates. And obviously you've had a, an, a bunch over your career, both at UNC and then obviously professionally as well as with our U.S. teams. Is there any of those that you, you reach out to on a, on a consistent basis that you stay in touch with? Uh, I know I watched that 99 reunion on TV. Yeah. Uh, you guys sitting out there at the Rose Bowl and just chit-chatting. Yeah. Uh, when there was 100,000 people there in 99 in that hot weather and the Rose Bowl. Yeah. Uh, any of those girls that you, you get together, you see, or you talk to on yeah. a frequent basis? Yeah, well, um, Mia, Ham, and Tish Venturini, uh, two players I also played at North Carolina with, um, we run Team for a Soccer Academy. So we travel around the country and try and teach kids soccer. And selfishly, we we started it so we could see each other. <laughs> and then bonus, we get to, you know, be around kids, make a little money. I mean, uh, but really just to see each other. But the 99 team, we're on a, you know, a text chain. Whenever it's someone's birthday, everyone's just saying happy birthday. So we're all in contact. And I think the neat thing about it was when I when I wrote this book with these two other friends of mine, uh, Powerhouse, my job was to get interviews with um, my former teammates. So John is the other co-author. And he's like, I really need you to, you know, get these interviews set up so we can interview the players, you know, about the different topics. I'm like, okay. And I was a little bit hesitant to reach out, not because of any other reason, but just because I knew everyone's so busy. Sure. So I sent out a text and I immediately got response. And they're like, Lil, just let me know. I'd love to do it. And for me, that was like, ugh, I knew that that's what it was going to be, but that's what, that's why these players are so great. It's not just right. the, what they do. It's what they, you know, do for others. And so um, that was really cool for me. Cause I had about, you know, seven or eight of them that were part of the book that helped out a lot. So we are in contact. And when we see each other after years, it's still same <laughs> locker room batter. You know, you guys would know the same thing when you see old buddies, you know, it goes back to when you were together. Yeah. Anything else coach? No, I, I think uh, I could stay here all day talking to this young lady, but I think my last question for her is that, uh, like you say, uh, that 99 team influenced and inspired a lot of young girls that came to those stadiums to see you play and support you from opening game and the games at Giant Stadium and Soldier Field and then the Rose Bowl and everywhere you went. You're, you're right. It was like a, a rock star group that was uh, yeah. captivating our country. And the world, to be honest. I, I just want to say that uh, put aside your playing ability and, and the quality of that, I just think you girls, especially yourself, have represented the game so well and instilled and inspired this century, the 21st century, uh, an inspiration for a lot of girls that uh, aspire to play this game. And it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. So I just want to say, hey, all the best as you continue to watch your girls grow up and uh, 
And I know that I drove by that sign where when I went to Coach Reed's house in Wilton, Connecticut, the home of Mr. <laughs> Lilly. There's nothing like that in Brentwood about Ray Reed or I. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a nice small little town, you know. <laughs> it was very, they were great. And uh, it's neat. Um, I go, I was just back. I went, I just drove through there yesterday to go see my mom in Norwalk. And uh, it's just a sweet little, sweet little place that brings back a lot of memories. Chris, I tell you, I don't know you that well. I knew you when you were much younger, but I've always been taken back how humble and sincere you are for a person with all your accolades and stay the way you are because as much as you're a model for female players, you're a model for people to always remember where you came from. I give you a lot of credit. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I think, you know, I, I learned a lot from that team and uh, and how quickly you can be up here and how quickly you could be down here. And so... Everyone kept us all pretty humble and hardworking, and I think my parents instilled a lot of that in me as well, so I'm grateful for them. We appreciate We know you're busy. You know, We know you're a mom, and you got other opportunities in the family and the business. We appreciate you being on with us today. Oh, thank you, guys. It's so nice to speak with you guys. Well, it's nice to speak with you, too. Thanks for listening to For the Love of the Game with Ralph and Ray. Be sure to leave us a review and follow this podcast on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk with you next time.